Yes, of course we're saved by grace. Yes, of course that grace costs nothing, but saving grace demands everything. Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, go to plainfieldchristian.com. Enjoy today's podcast. Morning, church. Uh, If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Luke, and I get to serve as one of the ministers here at Plainfield Christian Church. And if we have had the chance to meet, um, then that probably means you're already really tired of uh, hearing me say this, but I get to be the proud dad to three little boys, ages five, three, and one. And that means a couple things for our family. Uh, The first thing that it means is that in the Proctor house, there's a lot of nudity. Um... (laughs) You know, between the potty training and the diaper changes, and you guys know how little kids just like to randomly take off their clothes and run around, you know, like, if you came to my house this afternoon and open up the front door, the odds of you encountering a full moon are pretty good. (laughs) And so that, like, coupled with the reality that little kids love to put everything in their mouths, and that our little boys especially love to go get critters from outside and bring them inside and build habitats for them, it means that our home has kind of turned into this, like, warped reality survival show kind of environment. It's kind of like the toddler version of the TV show Naked and Afraid. You guys been? They're naked, we're afraid. That's how that works. And that's the first thing that means. The second thing it means for the Proctor home is that we have a lot of entertaining conversations because you guys know little kids, they don't exactly know yet what they're supposed to say and not supposed to say, what questions they're allowed to ask or not ask. Uh, A few weeks ago, one of our little boys who shall remain nameless punched his other brother in the face, which is not an uncommon occurrence. And we're like, dude, why'd you do it? And he said, there was an earthquake. (laughs) You got to give him points for creativity. I did not see that one coming. Um, But one of the most convicting questions that they ask is that almost any time we meet somebody new, they will either ask that person or they'll ask Rebecca and I afterwards, they'll say, does that person love Jesus? Are they going to heaven? It's a pretty good question. And it's a question that a lot of the time us grownups are scared to ask. And it's a pretty good question, not just for other people. It's actually a really good question to ask of ourselves. And I don't know if you're like me, but I ask that question of myself fairly regularly. Like I look at my life and sometimes I'm like, man, do I love Jesus? And and sometimes if you're like me, you've got that nagging sensation inside of you that's like, man, am I, am I going to heaven? Am I in? Have I done enough? Am I good? Am I saved? And that's kind of the question that's going to be driving this whole discussion today. We're in this series right now, like Kyle mentioned, called Hold It Together, where we're exploring these tensions that we have to live with in the life of faith, how God will tell us two things that are simultaneously true, and they appear to be contradictory, and yet we're called to just hold on to both of them together, truths like grace and truth and God's goodness and human suffering. And today, Krista Troop, our early childhood minister, is going to help us explore this tension between trusting and trying. And underneath all of that tension are these fundamental questions of, do I love Jesus? Am I good? Am I in? Am I saved? Am I going to heaven? Now, let's just start by making it clear from the get-go, because on the one hand, like the Bible is very, very clear that you are saved by trusting in Jesus. You cannot save yourself. You cannot do anything to earn it. You are not your savior. Jesus is your savior, and you are saved by trusting in him. Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, for it is by grace you have been saved 
through faith. You're saved through trusting. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Paul says later in Romans chapter 10, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe, you trust in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You are saved by trusting in Jesus. Amen. 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 Now, on the other hand, there's also some trying involved. That the kind of trust that will lead you to salvation is also the kind of trust that will try to live that out. Faith needs action. James chapter two says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Paul says, hey, if you have a real trust, then you're gonna be trying to put this thing to work. Paul says in Philippians chapter two, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, you are saved by faith alone, and yet faith that saves is never alone. It always comes with repentance and confession and baptism. It comes with good works like generosity and worship and service because yes, Jesus is your savior, but he's not just your savior, he's also your Lord. And so all of us today, we kind of probably tend to default to one end of the spectrum or the other. Like some of you, you default over here to the trying end. Like when you've got a problem in your life, you're gonna work hard, you're gonna try hard, you're gonna figure it out and accomplish it and, 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 and get it done. And, and that's how you approach your faith too. Like you're doing all the things that you're supposed to do and yet maybe if you're over here on this trying end of the spectrum, there's this nagging question underneath all of it. Have I done enough? And over here on the other end of the spectrum, there's people who default toward trusting and you're just kind of like, you know what? I'm pretty sure it's all gonna work itself out in the end. That's how you approach your life. That's how you approach your faith too. Yes, like, of course I believe in God. I know he's there. He knows I'm there. We're good. We're gonna go do our own things now. And, and, and somewhere in this tension, there is the health. And Krista, you and I, we actually personally default to opposite ends of this spectrum just based on our personality. Krista's more over here. I'm more over here by nature. And, and so... Krista, specifically for the people in the room today who do default over here to the trying end of things, they're working hard to get it done, maybe they're asking if they've done enough, help us wade through this tension of trusting and trying. What is it that Jesus actually wants from us? Yeah, Luke, I think that's the question, right? What does that trust look like? And as Luke and I were talking through this topic and planning this sermon, one scripture in particular really emphasizes our need to trust And this scripture comes from Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. And this scripture reads, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, he placed his hands on them, and he blessed them. Love that. So often in our faith, we can feel overwhelmed from the constant grinding and spinning of doubts and questions, asking if we've done enough for God, asking if we are enough for God, asking if God's love is big enough for us. But this scripture gives us hope that that's not how God intended our faith to be. In the moments we feel the fatigue of constantly grasping for a trust that's out of reach, Jesus tells us to be like children. As Luke said, I get to work here at PCC as one of the children's ministers. So I get to work with kids week in and week out. And I've been on staff for about four years now. So I've seen a lot of things from kids, right? Kids 
being really funny, kids being outright crazy, kids being loving and honest and kind, and kids sharing real parts of themselves of anger and anxiety and fear. And through all of my experiences with kids, the thing that has stuck out to me most is their all-encompassing dependence on the adults in their lives. We know this, right? Kids need help from parents for almost everything until a certain age. Diapers, using the bathroom, food, water, shelter, you name it, kids need help from their parents. They depend on their parents. And while kids aren't fully aware of their inability to survive on their own in the world, they have an awareness of the world around them and they ask these big questions and they have these very real fears And through this, we see how kids are uniquely wired to depend on the adults in their lives. Now, do you remember when you were a kid and you were at the pool and you were too little to touch in the deep end or you just didn't know how to swim yet and everyone else was jumping in the water and it was a really hot day, so you wanted to get in that really cold pool. So your parent got in the pool right in front of you and they put their arms out like this inviting you to jump, insisting that they would catch you. And with lots of fear and trepidation and adrenaline coursing through your little veins, you took those steps to the edge of the water and jumped into, the, into their arms, into the arms of someone who loves you so much they would never let you sink. Someone whose arms were open jump after jump after jump as you got more comfortable with the water. And it didn't mean that after that jump that all your fears were gone, but it did mean that your trust in that parent was greater than your fear of the water. This type of trust and dependence is what God is calling us to. As Luke and I were preparing this sermon and asking this question of what it looks like to really trust God with our lives, I was brought back to a season of my life where trust felt like the most distant thing I had. The season was debilitating, it was full of doubt and questions. And this season for me started with a cancer diagnosis for my mom. Cancer's everywhere, we know that, right? I think just deep down, I didn't think it could happen to me, you know? And then as that kind of set in, we got a second diagnosis of in-stage kidney failure. Double whammy, two different life-threatening ailments, two different sets of treatments, and one really long road ahead. And at the time we got this news, I was in my last semester of Bible college. I'd been married for all of three months. I was working at a local church as a children's minister, and my husband and I were preparing for a three-month-long missions internship in Ghana, West Africa. I thought I was all in for God. I thought he had all of my trust. But when this happened, all I could ask was why? Why, God? Haven't I done enough for you? Haven't I served your kingdom in enough ways? Why is this happening to my mom, to my family? And this season was definitely defined by doubt, doubting that I chose the right path for my life, doubting that God was with me in my suffering, doubting that all of this faith was real. And this doubt, inevitably, put it a wedge between me and Jesus in a way I had never experienced. And slowly but surely, I had a really wonderful group of Christian friends come around me. And with little steps here and there, I was able to take steps back to Jesus. 
and jump into his arms that had been waiting there, open to catch me all along. And with each jump, my trust was restored in God. And and I realized that in the midst of all of this suffering, I realized that I had put my trust in what I could do for God and not in what he's already done for all of us. Praise be to God, my mom is two years cancer-free, which is so awesome. Yeah, that's right, give it up, that was good. And just one month ago, she actually had a kidney transplant, which is so great. And she's recovering so well. And while this is our story, I am all too aware that this is not how every story of pain and suffering and doubt ends. And if we wait for miraculous healing or victory to come, we will miss out on jumping into the arms of Jesus and miss out on the fullness of a relationship with him. And we've been praising God for these triumphs and this victory in my mom's life and in our family. But when I look back at this story, the part where my faith grew the most and where my trust was really built was in the midst of the doubt and of the questions. In the moments of anger and fear that I had to keep taking those small steps towards Jesus, that was where my faith was carved and shaped into a a faith totally independent of my circumstances and my comforts. A faith based on trusting wholeheartedly, even when you're scared and full of doubt. And this doubt for you might be similar to what I experienced, or it might be just doubting that you've checked enough boxes for Jesus, doubting that you have done enough for him, that your salvation is secure. But the good news is whatever that doubt is, God can work through this stretching and through this season of doubt to produce a trust. Chris, I love that image that you've given us of a a parent in the pool with their arms out and the kid just trusting them enough to jump in and and just uh, trust that they're gonna catch them. And I love, obviously, praise God for what he's doing Mm, to, to help your mom. But also, I love that you said that the development of your faith didn't come like after the victory mm-hmm. came. It came in the middle of that long season when you didn't know how things were going to end up. And I think a lot of us could say that, that whether you're in there now or whether you've been through those kinds of seasons before, seasons of doubt and pain and questioning. And, and that is where God grows us mm-hmm. in our faith in those particular moments. And to have the faith of a child in that moment, it doesn't mean that we don't ask any questions. It's not this, just this kind of blind trust. I read a survey uh, this week that said on average kids between the ages of three and five ask 76 questions per hour. Um, and at least in our house, that feels conservative. Y'all. Um, and like they have all kinds of questions and fears and doubts and their own little stresses and problems and anxieties that from our perspective look little, but from their perspective, they're huge. And maybe that's how God feels about us. But in, in, in those moments, it's not that our fear and our questions are gone. It's that our dependence and trust on the parent is greater. So Krista, let's get practical here then for a minute. For the people right now who are in that kind of a season, who are in a season of pain or doubt, who are asking those kinds of questions, wondering, have I done enough? Am I good? Am I in? What does it look like for them to have that childlike faith and jump into Jesus's arms? Yeah, I think for me, it really comes down to three things. I think first, we have to name what we're feeling. We have to evaluate where our heart is and where our head's at. I think it's really easy to live our lives day to day, just going fast enough to where we don't have to feel or think about where we're at. And when we take time to really evaluate that, we're actually able to move towards Jesus. And then I think second, 
we have to jump. And I know if we believe he is the hope we have, we have to keep moving towards him, even when we feel like we're dragging ourselves that way. And maybe what helps you, maybe what helped me, finding a good group of Christian people to pull you towards him. It may be surrounding yourself in Jesus stuff and scripture and prayer, Christian podcasts, Christian music, whatever it is, we have to move towards him and jump. And then third, we have to be patient, which is my favorite thing to tell kids, right? (laughs) A really easy one. But just like that kid jumping into the arms of their parent, it didn't mean all their fears were gone, but with each jump, it got easier and easier. And that's how our trust is built intentional jump after jump towards Jesus, we grow in that trust. That's helpful. So I love this picture of jumping into Jesus, trusting trusting he's gonna catch you. That's really helpful if you're on this end of the spectrum. But if you're on this end of the spectrum, some of the time the the problem is that we've got some things we are holding on to that we need to let go of first before we can jump and Jesus can catch us. Um, uh, A couple weeks ago, you know, was Halloween and here's my confession to you. I've never been trick-or-treating in my entire life. You know, when I grew up as a little kid, we didn't have neighbors nearby. It just wasn't something that we did. Uh, But our kids are old enough now that we're like, hey, we're gonna give the world this year. So I went trick-or-treating for the first time in my life about two weeks ago. A little weird, the grown-up asking for candy, but you know what? I was all in, and we, we had a blast. And uh, while we were trick-or-treating, I walked around with our middle son, Calvin. Now, here's what you need to know about Calvin. Calvin's great dream in life, his deepest passion and desire, the thing that gets him out of bed in the morning and gets him through his day is that he longs to be a farmer. That's, I mean, he's... He's got this imaginary farm on his head that he works on every single day. And little three-year-old Calvin, in our house, we just call him Farmer Cal. That's what he goes by. And, and Farmer Cal, he's like every other three-year-old boy. You know, he loves to prove how strong he is. He, he wants to go stand and flex his muscles and stuff. He's the kid who's going to find the biggest thing in the room and see if he can knock it over. When I come home from work in the afternoons, he's flying out of nowhere trying to see if he can knock me over. He wants to prove how strong he is. And so uh, for Halloween, three-year-old Calvin dressed up as a farmer. He had the boots, the flannel shirt, Carhartt, John Deere ball cap, you know, the whole nine yards. And he went trotting around the neighborhood, clomping around in his boots. And as I'm walking with Cal there, as the night wore on, we're going from house to house, block to block. The clock is ticking. It's getting way past his bedtime. And I look over and Calvin is fading fast. I mean, those little three-year-old legs are churning, but those eyes are kind of, they're kind of growing dim. Like he's, he's getting pretty tired. And so as we go from house to house, that bag of candy gets bigger and bigger, heavier and heavier, bulkier and bulkier under the weight of all of this chocolate. And so I initially offered to eat some of it, but he obviously said no. And then, then I said, buddy, you want me to carry that bag for you? No. You know, I'm a farmer, dad. I got this, you know. <laughs> Yesterday, I asked Calvin, I said, how tall do you think you're going to be when you grow up? He said, as tall as a farmer. Duh, you know. Um, <laughs> it's like, no. He's, he, he decided he was not going to let me carry the bag of candy. So, okay, we keep walking and we go further. I mean, block after block, house after house. And I look over and Farmer Cal, he is struggling. I mean, this dude is staggering. That bag of candy's heavy. He's kind of limping along. And so I asked him again. I said, Cal, you want me to carry that for you? No. I got this, Dad. I'm, I'm strong. And so we keep going. I mean, house after house, and I look over, and he is just staggering down the sidewalk, practically dragging the bag. The other kids are 100 yards ahead of us. We are falling way behind. And, and I just said, Cal, do you want me to carry that for you, buddy? 
And at that point, he didn't even say a word. He just handed it to me and he let me carry it and he let me hold his hand, you know, and we got to walk the last little stretch there to the van. And by the time we got back to the van, he couldn't even carry himself. So I lifted him into his car seat and set him up there. And, and that moment, as a dad, was I disappointed in my son? Of course not. No way, I wanted, I wanted to carry it for him. I could see him struggling under the weight of that burden of chocolate. And so of course, like, of course I wanted to carry it for him. Of course I wanted to carry him, but I couldn't help him until he was willing to let go. And it's the same thing in our relationship with God. Krista's done a really good job of showing us how we can default to this end of the spectrum over here, trying so hard to prove how strong we are when that's not the point. Jesus is the strong one, right? And yet, there's this other danger over here on the trusting end of the spectrum where it's kind of this false, shallow kind of trust that assumes God's good, so I'm good, but we're all the while still holding on to some things that we need to let go of in order to be truly carried by him. And this is especially a danger for us here in Hendricks County where cultural Christianity is still a thing. And if you ask a lot of people, they'll say, well, yeah, of course I believe in God. And yet that belief has no real bearing on the decisions they make or the life that they live. That's a dangerous counterfeit form of trusting. And so we've got this tension between trusting and trying. There's a guy in the Bible, he was the half-brother of Jesus. His name is James. He was another one of the sons of Mary and Joseph. And he writes this in James chapter two. He talks about this tension. He says, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So let me ask you a little bit of a weird question this morning. What makes your faith different from the faith of a demon? Because think about it. A demon has a form of faith. A demon has a form of trusting. They know that God is real. They know that Jesus died and rose again. They believe that that is true. And yet we wouldn't say that they have a saving faith. So what is the difference between your faith and the faith of a demon? The difference is a demon doesn't like let go of the things they need to let go of. They don't do the things they need to do. They don't trust to such a deep degree that they then obey Jesus. They don't marry their trusting with trying. What makes your faith different from the faith of a demon? Krista read earlier from Mark chapter 10 about how Jesus wants to find this childlike faith in us, this trust, this dependence. Well, I think it's fascinating. Jesus has an interaction there in Mark chapter 10 right after he says that. Look at these verses, 17 through 25. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And there's our question, right? Like, hey, what do I have to do to be good? Am I in? Am I saved? Am I done enough? Seems like he's got that nagging sensation that a lot of us do. Jesus answered him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. This is fascinating. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now this is amazing, because that's actually the only time in the whole Gospel of Mark that it explicitly tells us that Jesus loved somebody. And his love drove him to speak some really hard truth to this young guy, to confront his counterfeit form of trusting. Jesus said to him, he said, one thing you lack, go, sell everything you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come follow me. 
At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, you may not feel particularly rich this morning, especially if you've filled up your car with gas lately, and and it's easy for all of us to look around at people who have more than we do, and yet you know that in the spectrum of the entire planet, we are among the wealthiest people on earth, every one of us in this room together. And so as rich people who are reading this text about how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, When we hear Jesus say, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, if you're anything like me, my natural inclination is to explain that away. And say, oh, well, that doesn't apply to everybody. Jesus is just talking about that guy, you know? And of course, that was, you know, metaphorical. He doesn't mean it literally. And and, and we're saved by grace. And yes, of course, we're saved by grace, but let's not wriggle out from under this text too easily. It's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, a camel can go through the eye of a needle. You just have to put the camel in a blender first. (laughs) It can happen. It ain't much fun for the camel. (laughs) And, and, And listen, maybe that's what Jesus is saying to you today. Maybe you need to marry your trusting with trying. Yes, of course we're saved by grace. Yes, of course that grace is free. Yes, of course that grace costs Nothing but saving grace demands everything. And so maybe today Jesus wants to stick you in a blender. Maybe he's saying that your faith needs some works. Your belief needs some action. Maybe you need to marry your trusting with trying. Maybe it's you that your wallet is standing in the way of your heart. Maybe Jesus is saying to you today, I can't carry you until you let go of that bag of candy. So the rich young man's money stood in the way of his relationship with God. His wallet was too attached to his heart. But what other kinds of things can stand in the way for us? Yeah, I mean, I think the thrust of the text here is money. Jesus mm-hmm. is talking about our finances. And I know we talk about money a lot here. Listen, it's not because we want something from you. It's just because Jesus talks a lot about money and we're committed as a church to talking about the things Jesus talks about. And Jesus talks often about how close our money is tied to our hearts, and you guys feel this. Like the more stuff you have, the harder it is to not let your stuff have you. And so a lot of the time it is, like if you wanna grow our faith, we gotta let go of some of that and grow in generosity and trust for Jesus. So money is a big one. Um, another big one though is, is time. If you're anything like me, it's a lot easier for me to give away money than it is for me to give away time. Time is valuable. Time is money, we say, right? And, and especially, you mentioned it earlier, Chris, that we run at such a fast pace, we're so busy, we're so hurried, everybody's calendar and schedule is full that a risk we run here in Hennigan County is being too busy to be Christian. And some of the time, Jesus just wants you to give him some time. Uh, another thing we need to let go of sometime, it is just some sin. Like so maybe you've been carrying some darkness around with you that you need to get rid of. Some of the time it's work that we need to let go of. Work is a good thing. I would be a workaholic if I didn't have people around me to hold in check. God made work, and yet work can become all-consuming if it's done in a self-reliant and self-promoting way rather than a God-reliant and God-promoting way. And then another thing that can stand in the way that's a kicker is family, um, I hear a lot of people say, family first. We're a family town, and that's a good thing. There's a good sentiment behind it. And yet, 
as followers of Jesus, our call is always to put Jesus first. Our allegiance to him is foremost in our lives and everything flows out of that, including family. So practically, how do we let our trusting lead to trying? How do we know where our faith needs to take action? That's a good question. Um, In this whole series, we're not gonna do a lot of telling you what to do. Um, We're just gonna try to wrestle through these tensions together and help us think like Christians with the help of God's word Mm -hmm. and his Holy Spirit who lives in you. If you're a follower of Jesus, I believe he'll convict you and show you what action you need to take. And so in light of that, I think you probably already know what to do. You just might need some encouragement to do it. I like to do this little thought exercise. Imagine Jesus walked in the room right now and he came up to you And he looked you in the eyes and he said, give it up. What would he be talking about? Or if he came up to you and he looked at you and he said, go for it. What would he be referring to? Or if Jesus came to you and he said, let it go, what would he be meaning? My guess is somewhere inside of you, you probably already know what it is that Jesus wants you to do. And so if I could just encourage you, if you're a follower of Jesus and you say that he is your king, then that means that Jesus is the king of your time and your family and your money and your schedule and your sexuality and your body and your work and your rest and your play. And so as followers of Jesus, our calling is to bring all of those things and to lay them down at his feet and to let them go and to say, okay, Jesus, this is yours. I will do with it what you want me to do. I'm following you. And sometimes that's a hard jump to make on the front end of things, but on the other end of things, it's always worth it because everything that Jesus offers us is so much better. So, do you need to go for it or give it up? Do you need to rest in the arms of Jesus like a little child? Or do you need to give up your comforts like the rich young ruler? Are you struggling to trust or are you struggling to try? My guess is we can all find parts of our hearts that go into both of these things. And holding this tension between these two, trusting and trying, may feel like a balancing act. But the beauty within this tension is the freedom we have to wrestle. We have freedom and confidence to wrestle with this tension because of what Jesus did on the cross. Not because we're good enough, not because we've done enough. It's because our Heavenly Father loves us and wants to spend forever with us. And we know this is a hard question to ask ourselves, but we wanna help you navigate and discern where Jesus is calling you. And we have a prayer team that'll be around after the service, and they would love to pray with you as you discern where Jesus is calling you to trust or where he may be calling you to try. But now, we're going to do something that Jesus calls us to each week. Communion, is a time when we reflect on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus came to life, lived, or came to earth, lived a perfect life, died an unjust death on a cross, and rose from the dead three days later so that we can have an eternal relationship with him. Because of his great sacrifice of love, we get to take this bread and cup in remembrance of him. So now we're gonna take a moment for you to pray on your own and take the bread and then I'll close us in prayer and we'll take the cup together. Mm -hmm. 
God, we thank you for this time each week when we get to reflect on your great love and on your great sacrifice of your son. I pray that we would remember the sacrifice and the cross as we navigate what it looks like to trust you with our lives and what it looks like to try in obedience to you. Thank you for Jesus. Amen. Thank you.